Hello there, and welcome to another edition of Theater Shove It. I'm your host, Greg, and I'm here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV. Also this week, I shared the latest arrivals on streaming services and now streaming, and Be Kind Rewind looks at the film you voted for. Let's get started. In our featured movies this week, The Turtles on a Half Shell return to theaters in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, Randall Park makes his solo feature debut with shortcomings, Jason Statham fights those creatures of the deep again in Meg 2, The Trench, and a musician gets unlikely fame in Dreamin' Wild. First up, crime-fighting reptiles try to clean up crime and their reputation. This is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. We're just running errands. That's it? Sorry, Splinter. Some of the guys wanted to get pizza, and I tried to talk them out of it. Leo! You ratted us out. Hey, don't use that word that way. I mean, it's 2023. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, if we weren't monsters that were shunned by society and we could do what we wanted, <laughs> what would you guys do? Go to high school? Maybe get a girlfriend? Can you imagine that? Not likely. In the latest version of the classic comic, Filmmakers go way back to the origins of the Turtles when the film opens with scientist Baxter Stockman, voiced by Giancarlo Esposito, as he creates the life-altering ooze that, when interacted with, turns the ordinary into mutants, which happens to the Turtles when it is spilled into the sewers and impacts Donatello, voiced by Micah Abbey, Leonardo, voiced by Nicholas Cantu, Michelangelo, voiced by Shimon Brown Jr., and Raphael, voiced by Brady Noon. Guiding the quartet is their leader Splinter, a rat who is also impacted by the spill and by default becomes the leader of the Turtles. He is voiced by Jackie Chan. Splinter teaches the Turtles the ninja skills they use to survive their conflicts. He is also their father figure and raises them in a somewhat overprotective way, forbidding them to have any interaction with humans because humans are just awful people. But... Teenage Turtles being Teenage Turtles, they feel the urge to explore what is out there and begin sneaking out against Splinter's wishes. They soon get themselves involved in the distress of April O'Neil, voiced by Ayo Edabiri, a teenager who has just had her moped stolen and then retrieved with the help of the Turtles. With their help, April invites them to join her as she investigates a string of robberies of the TCRO technology by the criminal Superfly, voiced by Ice Cube. Will they be able to solve the mystery, or will their efforts be covered with ooze? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a see-it, and I give this film a... See-it! This film was just as fun as I thought it would be. The animation did remind me a lot of Spider-Verse, and that's a good thing because I find that style of animation to be really innovative and, and engaging. The voice cast also includes Maya Rudolph, John Cena, Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, and Paul Rudd, and all of them are great. What's interesting is that each of the Turtles is voiced by an actual teenager, so it kind of gives those characters some more authenticity than maybe we've seen in the past. The plot moved right along through the big epic battle at the end. 
eh, maybe that battle went on just a few minutes too long because it was starting to get a little repetitive, but that's okay, because most of the movie is very charming, and I think any fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is going to enjoy this immensely. It's not a perfect movie, but it sure is one of the better ones I've seen this summer. Next, when a man and his girlfriend take an extended break, he is left to confront the issues that plague him. This is Shortcomings. I was practically the only non-white person in my entire high school. And you never felt discriminated against? I definitely did, but not because I was Asian. Because of your inherent bad personality. Exactly. Do you remember that internship that I applied for? What about it? It's in New York. New York is overrated. It's so gentrified now. How many times have you even been there? Are we counting layovers? You always assume the worst about me, and then you end up acting crazy over nothing. I'm not acting crazy, so stop using that word. <gasps> You're just proving my point. Based on the graphic novel by Adrian Tomine, Shortcomings tells of Berkeley, California resident Ben, played by Justin H. Min, a man whose interests in cinema range from hoity-toity to highfalutin, and he has no problem sharing his dismay at the film that highlights his girlfriend's film festival, dismissing it as too crowd-pleasing for his taste, and he can hardly stomach meeting the director. Miko, his girlfriend, played by Ali Mackey, feels he's just being a snobby asshole and believes this film will lead to better representation of Asians in film and, in turn, more opportunities for future films. As a failed film student, Ben spends his day working at a rundown movie theater that works with a skeleton staff of misfits, while he spends his nights watching his Criterion DVDs of auteur films. This begins to put a wedge in his relationship with Miko. And soon, Miko informs him that she has received an opportunity to go to New York City for a film school internship and will be gone for three months. Due to the strains of their relationship, she feels it's best that they put it on pause during this time and let each other explore their interests. With Maki gone, Ben's best friend Alice, played by Sherry Cola, seeks to get Ben out of his self-imposed shell to explore his options in life. She is the polar opposite, a social butterfly who is filled with self-confidence even if she is a little scattered in the direction of her life at the moment. Fighting self-loathing, Ben begins to meet a variety of women who all give him the opportunity to see what a miserable asshole he is. Will Ben be capable of realizing this before he reunites with Maki? I give this film a... See it! This film was very enjoyable. I liked that the story didn't really follow any of the cliches that you see in typical romantic comedies. Ben is an awful person, but unlike similar characters in other movies, he has no confidence, and he hates himself along with everybody else who hates him. When Miko goes to New York City, he is pissed because New York City is just so not California, and he has this real blasé attitude about it. Miko goes and doesn't turn back, and eventually things come to a head toward the end of the film. Speaking of the end of the film, it doesn't end in a stereotypical way, which I appreciated. The script, which was written by Tomin, the author of the graphic novel, is very tight and keeps the story moving along. You could tell that this was written by someone who knew these characters in and out. 
I really enjoyed all of the performances, and you'll rarely hear me say this, but at 92 minutes, I wish it was a little longer, because I didn't want to leave these characters so quickly. I wanted to know what happens next. I'll have to look into the graphic novel and see if it explores beyond what the film showed. This is Randall Park's first solo featured film that he directed. You may remember him from his acting on the TV show Fresh Off the Boat, as well as several other movies and TV projects, and I think he does a good job with this in terms of telling a nice structured story. I look forward to seeing what he does next in terms of directing. The film is playing in limited release, and if it's showing in your town, go see it if it sounds interesting to you. It's a nice way to spend an hour and a half at the theater. Next, when shady shit starts happening underwater, Jason Statham is called to dive back in. This is Meg 2, The Trench. Jonas, we've got company. That's the biggest Meg I've ever seen. Biggest Meg anyone's ever seen. That's the apex predator. Everybody make it to the station! Massive bags and who knows what else have escaped the breach. I just hope it goes better than last time. What happened last time? You don't want to know. Picking up some time after the first film, Statham returns as Jonas, a deep sea diver for the Zhang Institute. This is the institute that discovered the megalodons in the first film. We learn that the Institute has kept one of them in captivity for research purposes, and Zhu Ming, played by Wu Jing, attempts to show everyone that he has found a way to train the beast. Of course, it all goes off the rails when it escapes from captivity. For some reason, instead of searching for the missing Meg, the crew goes down to the ocean trench where they run into creatures both aquatic and human that are awful and complicate their mission. Surviving the first film and returning for this one is Mei Ying, played by Sophia Kai. Young Mei Ying wants to involve herself on the mission, but is told it's too dangerous. That is, until they are all forced to go to a place called Fun Island, where tourists are terrorized by not only the Meg, but also other creatures big and small. Can Jonas work his magic against the beast to save everyone? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a shove-it, and... I give this film a... Shove it. Okay, this movie was nothing but an utter piece of shit. I cannot think of any redeeming qualities, other than possibly the use of Hart's song Barracuda in the trailer, which I love that song. Um, But even the fins on the Megalodon looked so fake that it was unbelievable to me that this was a big-budget major Hollywood studio production. The script is awful, the action is boring, the acting is even worse. Somehow this involves not only the Megalodon, but also some kind of squid creature as well as dinosaur-like creatures that are never really explained as to why they're there. It was all very confusing, slow, and tedious. Usually when I know that a film is going to be intentionally campy, there's something I can do beforehand to go into the film expecting it to be a certain way, and then find a way to enjoy it even just a little bit, but this was even worse than I thought it was going to be, and when that happens, it makes for a very boring, tedious time at the movies. You can go ahead and skip this one. 
And finally, when an album is discovered decades after its recording, two middle-aged men are thrown into the spotlight. This is Dreamin' Wild. Hey, brother. Joe? I got something to tell you. Dad had a call yesterday from a guy at a record company. He says he heard our record and, uh... Our record? What do you mean? Dreamin' Wild. Great to meet you. Wanted to talk to you about this. There it is. It's Dreamin' Wild. That's you guys? Yeah, that's us. This album is unbelievable. Truly. It really just blew my mind. How did you do it? This film tells the true story of Washington residents Donnie and Joe Emerson, played here by Oscar winner Casey Affleck and Walton Goggins. In their youth, Donnie and Joe dreamed of starting their own band, with the support of their father, who encouraged them to do so. They eventually self-released an album that no one bought, and their dream was pushed to the side when the music industry became only interested in Donnie, played in his youth by Noah Jupe. That career didn't take off either. Thirty years later, the album is rediscovered and becomes a viral hit. The family gets a visit from an eager record executive, played by Chris Messina, who wants to get them out there to have the music career they have always wanted. At this point, Joe has been living a quiet life on his family's farm, helping to run the logging business his father, played by Bo Bridges, owns. Donnie has been living as a kind of a wedding singer with his wife Nancy, played by Zoe Deschanel. Is this the chance for him to get the career he's always wanted? Or is it too little, too late? I give this film a... See it! I thought as a whole this was a standard biopic with an interesting story. I seem to remember hearing about this in the news several years ago and thought it was quite interesting for something like that to happen, but the way the filmmakers wrote it just kind of followed the natural beats of a biopic, so you kind of knew where it was going to go throughout the whole film, even though I wasn't overly familiar with the story. I just vaguely remember hearing about it. But what elevates this movie are the performances, especially Casey Affleck, who nobody can play downtrodden and sad as well as he can. And if you haven't seen his Oscar-winning performance in Manchester by the Sea, go watch it now. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. He is phenomenal in that movie, and I've never seen someone portray grief so deeply as he and Michelle Williams do in that movie. But anyway, back to this film. Walton Goggins is excellent as well with the emotions associated with his character, as is Jack Dylan Grazer, who plays the young version of Joe Emerson. And Noah Jupe is just a revelation as young Donnie. This is the a handful of movies that I've seen him in, and he's great in all of them. The emotions these actors pack are incredible. And there is one scene toward the end with Bo Bridges that almost had me in tears. That's how effective their acting was. So if you're looking for a great showcase of fantastic acting, I would recommend going to see this. Otherwise, no, no, watch it when it comes to streaming. It isn't something you need to run out and see on the big screen necessarily, but it is good, and if you do watch it, I think you'll enjoy it. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is in theaters now and is a see-it, and it's my pick of the week. Shortcomings is in theaters now and is a see-it. Meg 2 The Trench is in theaters now and is a huge shove-it. And Dreaming Wild is in theaters now and is a see-it. 
Now it's time to move on to the segment where I let you know the latest titles now available for home viewing. Let's get to now streaming. Available now on Stars is the horrid horror film Fear. It's one of the worst I've seen this year, and if you want to waste your time with this hot mess, at least it's very short, you can hear my full review on episode 57. And coming to Peacock Friday is Wes Anderson's latest, Asteroid City. As you may have heard on episode 89, I'm not a huge fan of Wes Anderson, but if you are, you'll probably enjoy it. And now you can, from the comfort of your couch, beginning Friday. Now it's time for my segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind, Rewind. This week's topic on the 52-week movie challenge was a festival award winner. And your choices were from the Cannes Film Festival, Pulp Fiction, from the Toronto International Film Festival, The Princess Bride, from the Venice Film Festival, The Wrestler, from the Berlin Film Festival, The People vs. Larry Flint, and from the Sundance Film Festival, The Great Fruitvale Station, which would have received my vote. But you voted instead, and you chose... The crowd pleaser, The Prince's Bride. Fancying, fighting, chases, escapes, giants, monsters, torture, revenge, true love, miracles. Look, I'm retired. I might kill whoever you wanted me to miracle. He's already dead. I'll take a look. Bring him in. In director Rob Reiner's fantasy epic, A Young Boy Who Is Ill is entertained by his grandfather, who has brought along a storybook to read to him to provide comfort while he's dealing with his illness. The book is called The Princess Bride, and it's a fairy tale love story between Buttercup, played by Robin Wright, and Wesley, played by Carrie Elwes. It was a love like no other until Wesley is seemingly lost at sea while on a treasure hunt. Swearing off love forever, Buttercup has a change of heart when she is proposed to by Prince Humperdinck, played by Chris Sarandon. Humperdinck is the heir to the throne of Florin. She does not love him, as she still pines for a reunion with Wesley, who is presumed dead. Soon, Buttercup is kidnapped in an effort to start a war, and the adventure begins where audiences go on a journey to find out if true love wins out in the end, while along the way meeting a vast array of characters, including a band of pirates, a miracle man, and his wife, played by Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, and Spanish sword fighter Enigo Montaya, played by Mandy Patinkin. Released on September 25th, 1987, the film is based on William Goldman's book, The Prince's Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure. Goldman wrote the screenplay while Rob Reiner opted to direct the film because he had loved the book so much, which was given to him as a gift from his father, the legendary Carl Reiner. At first, he was told by the studio that it would not be possible to adapt the book into a film, as there had already been several prior attempts. Working closely with Goldman, Reiner eventually got the funding necessary and filmed the movie throughout England and Ireland in 1986. When it was initially released, the film enjoyed critical acclaim, but only modest box office success, 
earning about $30 million on a $16 million budget. And it earned one Oscar nomination for its love song, Storybook Love, written by Dire Straits frontman Mark Knopfler. However, in time, it has become a cult classic that has only built up over the years, with all new generations appreciating the timeless tale of the story. It is known as one of the most quotable films in history, and its legacy reaches far and wide, including a pop-up bar in Chicago called As You Wish, which features 16 Princess Bride-themed cocktails, and that is inconceivable! The film is available to watch on Disney+. Plus. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a black-and-white film, and I chose one from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Your choices are Ed Wood, Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, and Paper Moon. Come to my Instagram at cedarshoveit to vote for which film I should focus on, and the post with the most likes will be next week's segment. So that's it for this episode of Cedar Shove It. But before I go, did you know that this is Cedar Shove It's 100th episode? I've enjoyed every week being able to bring you my passion for and feelings about film and television. And I am so grateful for the opportunity you give me to do this little passion project of mine, and I hope you'll join me for the next 100 episodes. Thank you so much for listening this week. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month. And while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. Don't forget, you can drop me a line at cedarshoveit at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd at cedarshoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcast. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on all the new releases, including The Dracula Story, The Last Voyage of Demeter, and the alien comedy Jules, and I should be finished with the second season of The Bear by then for the return of Binge It or Singe It. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great week. This episode of See It or Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved.